0: Well, grab your Bible and let's open up to Joshua chapter number two. Joshua chapter number two, as you're finding your way there, grab something to jot down a few notes with today. And as you're finding your way there, I just want to remind you that we took a first uh, important step together last week. I hope it was one that resonated, a step together as we deepen our roots in the incredible relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so often, as we go along in the Christian journey, we stop to recognize that there are constant changes around us. We cannot prevent those. We cannot necessarily control many of those. But we've got to be able to have the tools to adapt to those. And I will continue through these next 13 weeks following today's message to remind you that we're looking at Joshua with the, that framework. Joshua, if nothing else, is a book of constant transition, not just changes, but true transformation and transition, one after another. And if you and I can somehow, some way, tap into those incredible applications extract those out of the book of Joshua, our Christian lives are gonna be much better and deeper for having them resonate in us. Now, we do not wanna take another step today without going back last week and just reminding ourselves of what we learned at the end of chapter number one. Not at the end in terms of verses, but at the end of the message last week when we came to verses six, seven, and eight in Joshua chapter number one. We talked about you and I have got to come to the place in our Christian lives that we accept God's promises personally. And if you are reminded today, there are two challenges that I introduced to you last week that hurt us, they harm us because we have certain preconceived notions or we have certain acquired notions as we go along in the Christian life that hurt us and they harm us. One of those is that we think God's promises are altered by time. And we learned last week when we heard God whisper into the heart of Joshua. Joshua, by the way, from a personality standpoint, must not have been the most exuberant, exciting kind of guy. He was defined by military conquest. That's what he'd always known. We think, we sense, by the text and how Joshua reacted to certain things. And we'll see this as we go through the book, that Joshua was much more duty bound. Moses evidently led much more emotionally than Joshua did. And there were so many vast differences. One was extremely experienced. Think about that staff over the Red Sea. At least for the Israelite people, that is something that is stuck in stone for all of eternity in their hearts. He led them through this wandering experience. He was seasoned. And here we have this military commander, Joshua, rookie, very little experience. And when God whispered into Joshua's heart, Joshua, I'm gonna be with you just like I was with Moses. Joshua, Joshua, if you be obedient as Moses was obedient, I'm going to be with you and make you successful. When you and I look at that and we begin to understand that God's promises for us in 2021 transcend all of eternity and time, God whispers into our hearts the exact same message. Glenda, just as I was with your forefathers and ancestors, I'll be with you. Rebecca, just as I was with your ancestors and those that came before you, I'm going to be with you. For some reason, we get stuck, don't we? Looking at the past and thinking, well, that was a big deal for Moses, but what about little me? And we've got to be able to overcome that hurdle. We've got to understand God's promises are never altered by time, but we jotted a second very important thing. God's promises are never affected by circumstances. The people didn't know Moses was dead. It hadn't been announced. Moses wandered off all the time. And here we have this whispering into Joshua's heart. Joshua knew before anyone else. Joshua. Moses is dead. (laughs) He's gone. Now, Joshua, when this becomes public, I want you to be ready because Joshua, I'm going to be with you. And whatever you and I face we've got to understand that we have promises from God that speak to us personally. Can I hear an amen? Now today, we move to one of the most exciting chapters in all of the book of Joshua. Many of you know it so well that we're going to do something a little bit different today. Today, I'm going to walk you through all the first 22 verses or so, and we're going to do that very quickly. And then I want to come back, as we did last week, and introduce you to some of those important steps and strides. When you come to Joshua chapter 2 in terms of transition, the children of Israel are still over there on the east side of the Jordan. They've not crossed over. And it is now time to take another significant step. If you look in chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16, you see in your Bibles some preparation statements. Some statements where God is letting Joshua know, you need to get the military folks ready. Get them armed up. Battles are about to ensue. You see God's people preparing to make that journey. In fact, we mentioned ago about transitions. Think about this. You talk about some transitions now. They're about to transition from the east side to the west side of the Jordan. And that's going to be a big move. There's going to be the transition that we see going from wandering and desert experience now entering into a promised land. We're going from what? Moses to Joshua. We are going from one generation that has died and now that the, the desert is littered, littered with their graves. And now a whole new generation is about to enter. And so we see as we, as a reader in the book of Joshua, all of these things are scrolling and moving and they're all different moving pieces. And the children are there on the east side and they're getting ready to possess and claim and they're battle ready to begin. And so Joshua is gonna do as a military, what any good military man, he's gonna do some reconnaissance. Now there's a word that we understand any great military strategist will go in and check things out. And so in order to do that, he's going to send his own spies. Now, I just remind you, this particular, these two spies, much different than the previous spies 40 years ago. Those spies went in with this purpose. Is it possible for us to enter? We know two came back, Caleb and Joshua, and said, of course. The other 10 said, no way, we can't do it. We know that's what led to the rebellion. That's what led to the the folks, uh, almost 2 million people that said, hey, let's take a vote. Let's do this by democracy. One of those moments when democracy got it completely wrong and they paid the price for it. But this time, the two spies are not going in to find out if they can go in. This time, these two spies are going in on a reconnaissance mission with a whole different purpose. What is the best way for us to go in? And I just remind you that anytime we have reconnaissance on anything, anytime we begin to uh, check out the enemy in front of us or going into any kind of battle, there's two mistakes that we can make. We can always make the mistake that we can underestimate our enemy. In the Christian life, I've seen so many people make this tragic mistake spiritually. Don't you ever underestimate the enemy that we're fighting. That enemy is powerful. Now, he's not victorious, but he can do some damage. That's a good place for you to say amen. He can cause churches to have internal turmoil. He can cause marriages to dissolve. He can cause all kinds of calamity in our lives. But the other challenge that we face so often is not underestimating our enemy, but overestimating our enemy. And many times we come to that place in our Christian life as well. We sense, well, we're not gonna be able to make it. Hey, this is just too much. God, I'm ready to give up. I'm overwhelmed. There's no way for me to be successful. And I just remind you that Christ has already what? Paved the way for us to the victorious Christian life. It's up to us to receive that and to claim that incredible victory. Now, when we think about the most significant city where these spies are going to cross over, we think somewhere in between Gilgal and Jericho, they're going to come to the strategic city of Jericho as we begin reading in just a moment in Joshua chapter number two. It's significant. By the way, archaeology tells us that the city of Jericho was about eight to nine acres. Let me put that in some perspective for you. Our church facilities on both sides of the street are a whopping 5.48 acres altogether. So think about something about twice as large as the church compound on both sides of the street with two huge walls around it. Think about a strategic city that is at a very important crossroads as you come over the Jordan River, pretty significant location. And so these spies are gonna gear up, they're gonna get ready, they're gonna try to find out everything that they can. And by the way, this is such a remarkable and remarkable narrative in our Bibles. It speaks to so many important things. And we'll talk about that when we come to the end of our message this morning. Now, grab your Bibles. We've got a lot of reading to do, and we've got to read very quickly. Now, what I'm going to do is take you through as we read through a simple outline. That outline, if I do it well, should take us about 14 minutes and eight seconds. When we get through with that, there's two important things I want to share with you. And then as the clock begins to beep at, uh, at, at 1138, I'm going to ignore it, go four minutes over, and then we're going to go to lunch. Can I hear an amen to that? All right, wonderful. Here we go. Let's start by this. Jot it down. This will just keep you engaged as we walk through so many verses. I want you to see, first of all, how Rehab. Uh, rehab. Now there's... It's it's been a long night, you know what I'm saying? How Rahab demonstrates her faith. I'm glad y'all are laughing. Man, we need some laughter around here, amen? Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly took two spies from Shittim. Go and look over the land. What's the word for that? Reconnaissance. He said, especially Jericho. Now notice those instructions. Don't look just at one location But be very particular and let me know what's going on with this Jericho. Anything you can find out about it. But also look out over the land. Again, what are they looking for? How are we going to go in? What's the best place to enter? We have to be able to get into this new land and we're expecting all kinds of difficulties, but we've got to have a foothold. We've got to have somewhere to launch these attacks from. Could Jericho be that spot? The Bible says, so they went. And they entered to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. You know, one of the things I've heard in evangelical life so often, and I've got to be careful here not to talk so much about each one of these verses, but this is so important, is how so many people make comments about, well, why would such godly, God-led men go into the house of a prostitute? And I just remind you that if you wanted to be inconspicuous, if if you wanted to hide out in this day and time in a pagan culture, that's really a pretty good place to have strategic cover. Now let's move on. The king of Jericho was told, now look, Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho sent a message to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you and enter your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. And verse four, but the woman, isn't that an interesting statement? But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and she said, yes, yes. The men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from at dusk. And when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. Look in verse 7. So the men set out and pursued the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. You'll learn something in archaeology, biblical archaeology. You'll learn the difference in fords and negevs. We have creeks and streams. Forge and Negevs. Negevs many times are seasonal, they'll dry up. Fords typically have flowing waters and evidently, the East Texas vernacular, look around this creek, look at this stream that's heading into the Jordan, if you will, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Of all things, a prostitute. Of all things, God's providential care sent these two spies to a woman that was selling herself, not only in, a, in just any place, but in this Gentile pagan culture, selling her own body for hire in a city that was about to be judged by God, in a city that the time was running out. And of all things, the king hears of it. And he quickly begins to look for these spies. He knows who they are. He knows that they are reconnaissance folks, that they're trying to scout out. And, you know, uh, I mentioned a moment ago about so often we beat up on these spies for going to a prostitute's house. One of the important points of apologetics comes uh, out of this particular verse. We, we hear this so often where people will say, well, well, Pastor, I'll tell you one thing I don't understand about the whole Rahab thing. Why would God honor a lie? I've had teenagers, now none, now none of you try this, that they've even tried to levy this against their own parents to say, see, Rahab lied and God honored it. And so often people will ask, you know, pastor, or they'll ask their small group leader, what, what are your thoughts? Is it ever right to lie? And of course, we always bring up the same illustrations. What about when the Nazis were on the move and they knocked on those Jewish doors and there were people hiding out in the walls in that house and the people came to the door and lied to them. Was it okay to lie for for the sake of trying to to live their lives? Or someone says, well, what if someone comes and threatens your home and you got your kids and your grandkids there? Is it ever okay to lie and try to protect them? There's all kinds of jousting back and forth. But I just want you to understand, the Bible tells us that lying is all always wrong you get over there in your old testament and it teaches us those incredible truths about the lie Leviticus 19 simply says do not steal do not lie and do not deceive one another you come to the book of Proverbs Proverbs 24 you, you remember this incredible statement in scripture lying lips are an abomination to the what to the Lord Even Paul discusses this at length over in Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's around verse 25. Paul says, put off all your falsehoods and only what? Only speak truthfully to one another. But I just remind you that Rahab had not read Leviticus. I remind you that Rahab had not read Proverbs because it was hundreds of years from being written. And she certainly had never ever heard of Ephesus and the apostle Paul, I can assure you. Rahab, a pagan, a Amorite, a Canaanite if you will, a worship of Baal. But have you ever noticed that our Bibles, our New Testament in particular, every time, Matthew one, James, Hebrews, wherever Rahab's name is mentioned, have you ever noticed that it never referred to Rahab as Rahab the liar. It only referred to her as Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. It's interesting because you know what? Evidently God had forgiven her for what she had done. What God reminds us of is who she was. And the reason God continues to remind us of who she was, was again to speak to his ultimate grace of how God's grace is more than sufficient for anything that you and I have got to ever overcome in our lives. And for you sneaky snakes that wanna try to weasel in to the apologetics here, let me tell you something. I would never use an extreme illustration to be the standard for how I normally greet people in my home. I mean, this is one of those extreme situations. When are we ever commanded in God's word to take an extreme response and to make that our everyday, our standard response? So we see as Rahab begins this process, the spies come, She recognizes who they are. She knows there's great danger. Did you notice in the text, these first seven verses tell us that Rahab has already, what, hidden them, even as the men are looking for them. She senses danger. She has hidden them away, and she demonstrates her faith as it gets started. Jot this second thing down. Let's keep reading. Rahab describes her faith. These are some of the great verses in all the Bible. Look beginning in verse number eight, before the spies lay down for the night, She went up on the roof. Now, for you that are into the purity section, for you that are into the prostitute section, I hope that makes you feel a little bit better. They weren't sleeping together. The mission was not sex. We live in such a sex-filled society. That's what almost always comes to our mind immediately. Men are up there. She's down here. But before the evening's over, she goes to them. And the Bible says in verse 9, and she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Boy, that's a big statement. That's a big statement for almost a nine-acre compound, double-walled, that's fortified and ready for two million people just across the Jordan. They knew they were coming. You know, we have these different alerts in America now all different colors. I want you to understand Jericho was on the maximum level of preparation. They were ready. They knew what was about to come. They didn't know when, but they knew what. And she goes to him and she says, I know the Lord has given you this land and that great fear of you has fallen on us. Look at the plural there, on our people. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Look in verse 10. We've now heard how the Lord dried up. Uh, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to, to Sihon and Og, these are those two kings that they've overcome. But let's move on. The two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Look in verse 11. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. For everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Do you see how Rahab now is describing her faith? We've heard the message there in verse 9. We've heard evidence that God's at work in the lives of the people or they've heard, she's heard. Isn't that wonderful? Because, you know, the greatest sermon ever preached is not from the pulpit, but from the lives of people, from the lives of people that have had a change and transformation and miracles occur in their own lives. She's heard of these great miracles. And in verse nine, it appears that she's even heeded the message, She said, our hearts, including herself, there's her confessional statement. Hey, they've been transformed. But let's read through the end of these last few verses that we're going to look at this morning. And let's jot this down. Rahab declares her faith. She declares her faith. Look in verse 12. We must hurry. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death for our lives, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully. By the way, those are two covenant terms, aren't they? Kindly and faithfully, when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. Another providential thing of all places, her abode was on an exterior wall. How convenient. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves for three days until they return. And then go on your way. Look in verse 17. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, now look at at the disclaimer, if you will. When we enter the land, you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down. And unless you have brought your father and your mother, your brother, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside their house, into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. It'll be their own fault, in other words. Anyone you want protected, they're saying, Rahab, you better get them in the confines of these walls. And we will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath that you made us swear. Agreed, she replied in verse 21. Let it be as you say. And so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Last week, we talked about the magnitude of this study. And I shared with you that we're gonna be taking some steps and some strides. Now with your little outline somewhere in some white space out there in the margin, I wanna share with you heart to heart, at least for me, two strides, that are changers about chapter two of Joshua. Game changers, life changers. Just as we learned last week, the important stride of personally believing God's promises are for us in this time and in this set of circumstances, nothing can default God from his promises for us. Today, I just suggest to you two things Jot it down somewhere, very simple. I think this story of rehab, Rahab tells us about God's patience. One of the takeaways here has to be God's patience. Would you turn over in your Bible to Hebrews 11 and scroll down to verse 31? I mentioned a few moments ago, we know Rahab is mentioned in Matthew 1 in the lineage of Christ, of all things. We know that, second of all, Rahab is mentioned what? In Hebrews 11:31? 31, we're about to turn there. And we know it's also recorded for us and mentioned to us in the book of James. James talks about uh, Rahab as well. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31. Here's what that great hall of fame, that great walk of fame for the great faithful ones in the midst of that incredible ledger. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, a prostitute Rahab, not a liar, but a prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now I want you to look at something there. I want you to notice that there's two distinctions here. There is Rahab who heard of God's incredible message. He, she, uh, she, she heard about the, the great Jehovah God, and she obviously believed. But there were many other Amorites, there were many other pagan people that also heard of the same evidence. And they did not believe. They were not obedient. One of my great memories of pastoring at First Baptist Church in Hempstead, Texas, the watermelon watermelon capital of Texas, was a lady that came into our office, I think it was about the second year that I was pastoring there, And uh, she had been attending our church for some time. Every single week, we would give an altar call. We'd invite people to come to Christ. She made an appointment, came in, came in and sat down. And she said, I want you to know that I'm not upset. And I said, Praise the Lord. And she said, But I want you to know I cannot accept God as my Savior or Jesus as my Savior. And I said, Well, I would be extremely interested to know what in the world would keep you from trusting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And she said, because God is a radical. And I said, now that's an interesting statement. Tell me more about that. And she began to unfold. She whipped out a sheet of paper. I don't know how many references were on there. And she started reading them, just little phrases. I guess she had taken them out of a concordance. I guess she had researched them. And sure enough, boy, she had them in line. And God slay, and God slew, and God killed, and God took the lives of. And, and finally, after about 20 of those references, I could see there were many, many more. And finally I said, Can I just say time out? I I see what you're attempting to convey. And she said, Pastor, how could I ever follow a God? How could I ever trust a savior? And you proclaim, Baptists proclaim, I would assume, she says, the Bible proclaims that God and Jesus are one. And I said, well, certainly. And another added there, the spirit of God. But I said, yeah, yeah, yes. And she said, then they're all one, they're all guilty. And I said, well, one one way to attack this would be you and I could go back one by one and see if the people are deserving of what they got. But I said, can I suggest to you that maybe the best evidence of what you're sharing not being correct, I don't think your thought processes are on target. I said, I would suggest to you, I want to counter... To you saying God's a radical, I would like to share with you that God is extremely patient. And she said, well, I would be interested in what you would like to share. And I said, do you remember the story of Rahab? Oh, yes, she said. She was a woman of the night. I said, you're exactly right. We turned over there. We began to look. And when I was preparing for this message, all of that discussion came filtering back to me. Because when Rahab says, we have heard. You do understand, don't you? Your clock is ticking that over 40 years now have passed since they have heard. And they've heard more through what they've done on the east side of the river out there in that area in a preliminary fashion before they ever got to the Jordan River of how God has taken his people through 40 years, 40 plus years now of victories. And Rahab says, oh yes, we've heard. And so just as I did to her, I'll do to you today. I just lay it out there before you and I say, Do you think God's pretty patient if he waited 40 years for these Amorites to have a trusting knowledge of him? How many of you parents here today would ever approach your child and say, now I want that room cleaned up? and 40 years from now, I'm gonna come back and see if it's cleaned up. How many of you parents would say that's pretty patient? Or, how many of you men propose to your beautiful brides? You say, would you marry me? And I'm gonna come back in 40 years and find out if you said yes. Would that be pretty patient? Well, that didn't happen then because she reached up and grabbed that diamond right away, didn't she? Wasn't any waiting on that. But you know, an interesting thing about this is I conveyed to that lady and I conveyed to you today All of these statements about our God being radical and rash, a bloodthirsty God. Many of us have forgotten. Over there in Genesis 15, God put old Abraham to sleep one night. And he began, the Bible says, to speak into his heart Listen to these verses as the sun, Genesis 15, 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell in a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, you know for certain that, there, the, the, that, that for 400 years, your descendants, he said, are, are, will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Genesis 15, 14 says, but I will punish the nation they served as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions and you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Now listen to this, Genesis 15, 16. Oh, God's telling Abraham all this. And then he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, Abram, right here. They'll come back here, and the sin of the Amorites that has not been reached in full measure. Have you ever stopped to think God did not give these pagan people 40 years? He gave them 400 and 40 years. And as I began to unfold that important truth, the lady across the desk in Hempstead, Texas, folded up the long list of the radical acts of God, put them in her Bible and said, Pastor Mike, I will pray once again about making this God and this Jesus the Lord of my life. I just can't tell you how important it is in these strides that you and I make together in these changes of our life. And man, we're going through some changes. Our church is transitioning. Many of you are, some of you now are entering into the taking care of aged parent stage of your life. Some of you are newlyweds, a whole new dimension. Some of you are parents. Some are parents again and again and again and again. Hold the baby up for them to see. First Sunday is a Baptist right there. There you go. And what I want you to hear today is this. Our God is so patient. Some of you years ago told God, you knew he was doing something in your life but you just pushed him back and years later now, nothing has still really happened. Some of you in your search for a church home, some of you in your quest to find out who the savior really is. Some of you through the the challenges of change and chaos and heartbreak, and devastation in your lives came to that point where you said, hey, if there is a God, I don't know what He's doing. And, 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 and so your answer has been just wait, do nothing. I just suggest to you that as we look at this incredible narration, this narrative of Rahab and these spies, before the children ever move across the Jordan, I believe that you and I need to stride out together and put our arms around this concept that our God is more than patient. But as God spoke into the heart of Noah when he simply said, Noah, my spirit will not strive with man forever. We think, we think God should what? Be patient with us in infinity forever. But i just share with you this morning that there comes a point that even God will say, that's enough. And for Jericho, 440 years, that was enough. How long do we go without a church home? I can't answer that. How long do we go and put God off to really faithfully trust him and follow him in obedience and and trust his saving pledge and promise in our lives? I can't answer that. But what I can't answer for you historically is there'll be a moment in time that God says, that's enough. But today you and I need to embrace the fact that God is patient. And there's one final thing I think we can take from this today as a major stride in our life. And that's not just God's patience, but his passion. God's passion for people. God's passion for individuals. Now, I started not to share this with you, but it's too good for us not to share. You, I hope you're still there at Hebrews eleven thirty-one. 31. Go back to that verse and look at that verse once again with me. The Bible again says, by faith, a prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies. Do you see that word spies? Kataskapos in the Greek language. Kataskapos. She welcomed the and not and was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, I just want you to turn in your Bibles before we close a couple pages over. That means to the right. I'm turning pages to the left to James chapter 2. And I want you to scroll down to verse 25 and I want to show you something significant. James chapter 2 and verse 25. James brings Rahab to the forefront. And he also refers to her as Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab. Now, for you that bring the NIV, because I typically preach from the NIV, I preach from the NIV because it's typically the easiest language for most people to understand on any given weekend. The NIV does something very interesting here, and I want you to see, I think it's a mistake. You say, you're saying God's word's a mistake? I'm saying this particular translation, I think, has made a mistake. I want you to look, the NIV describes those men that visited Rahab as spies. Do you see it? But it's interesting because in our Greek New Testament, Kataskapos is not the word there. You know what the word there is in the Greek, the original Greek text? Angelos. The King James. The Christian standard. The American standard. All six revised translations. Every one of them used the word, the English word, in James chapter two, the word Messenger. And I would suggest to you that messenger is right on track. You say, well, pastor, why why are you saying all of this? I'm saying that because these men that came were more than spies. They brought a message affirming what? The power and the authority of God. We see what happened in Rahab's heart, how her heart was melted. She says "This just melted us, the power and the authority. We know now this is gonna be your land and we know the power of your God and that's the God I wanna follow. These men did not come just as spies. They came as angelos, as messengers, bringing that incredible message of God. If you don't believe that, when you go back to Joshua chapter one and look down there around verse 16, you see that God's people said, hey, 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 Joshua, we'll do whatever you want us to do. We'll be your servants. We'll go and we'll fulfill whatever task you have us to fulfill. And it's incredible because these men are coming as messengers and heralds of God. He said, well, pastor, what's all this got to do with passion? We can't walk out of Joshua 2 without addressing the incredible message that changed Rahab's life. A week ago, I spoke to a young couple back here in the back of our sanctuary that was here with their new baby for the very first time. And it had been such a struggle for them to get to that place. So I know they thought it was weary when I walked off and began to almost cry. Rahab goes into this. With no doubt, a heart that that probably, I mean, probably believes no man will ever care for me, <laughs> no man will ever marry me, no, no man's really going to be affectionate to me. Every man I've ever known really was just more interested in what I could provide them as a service. But I just remind you that God did have a man for her. And the whole nation, evidently, of Israel put their arms around this woman and her family. Matthew chapter one tells us the name of that man. His man, that man's name was Salmon. And Rahab and Salmon, they had a baby. She was able to experience motherhood. And that boy that was born to her, his name was Boaz. You think that's significant? You think that's significant that Boaz grew up understanding what it was to be a half-breed? What it be, was, because his mother had been an outcast, a prostitute, a harler, net harlot, never mentioned a liar. But you think that was important when Boaz came to that place that he more than embraced a lady that was a half-breed, a Moabitess out in the field. He was able to love her with all of his heart because his mother had been in exactly the same place. And the Bible says that Boaz and Ruth they had a baby. That baby was named Obed. And Obed and his wife had a baby. And that baby was named Jesse. And Jesse and his wife had seven babies, all boys. And the youngest was a little baby boy named David. And I will not walk away from Joshua chapter 2 and striding out and being reminded that our God has a true passion for every individual. Every one of us. Those men could have gone and held a magistrate inside of Jericho hostage and taped his mouth and tied him up. Looked around and escaped maybe somehow in the darkness. They could have approached the king and attempted to take him hostage, but of all the people that God sent them to in his providential care, a woman, not just a woman, but a prostitute woman, a harlot woman, And I think as we walk away from Joshua chapter 2, God strides out into our hearts and reminds us, our God is patient. And our God is a God of passion. Would you pray with me this morning? As you bow your heads, are you one of those That has heard the message of God and you believed you were obedient? Or are you one of those that has heard the word of God maybe over and over and you still sit here in disobedience and disbelief? Our God is patient, but his patience has some ending. Are you here today and you feel that maybe you've made such a mess of your life that you know what, there's no hope. How can you ever come back from some of the things that you've been a part of? There's no excuses. You've tried the blame game. You've tried to displace things and put them on someone else. But when it comes right back to it, your heart is so filled with brokenness and guilt and remorse at this point. And I just want you to know that there's hope for every single one of us, no matter what we've done or where we are. And so in our strides, toward a deeper covenant and faithfulness in our Lord. Today, some of us have decisions to make. Are we gonna still just move around in the melees of pandemic with excuses of time and not cinch up with some New Testament body in a church home where we need to be serving? How long? How long is that gonna go on? How long has it gone on? Are we gonna continue to search out in these areas of pockets of religion and church activities in exchange for a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendering to Him, following Him. And I just wonder, how long is that going to go on? How long will we continue to be selfish, self-centered, opinionated, and it's always about us? How long will that go on? So today as we pray to our Lord and open up this altar at a time of invitation, we do so asking for God's blessings and his direction and what he's saying to each able-bodied heart here today. God, what are you requiring of me? What are you asking of me? Just as Rahab let down that scarlet rope, not just a twig, not just some twine, but a significant rope to bear the weight of men, that red crimson rope signified again her identity in the blood-washed posture of our God in a whole new walk of life in the Christian faith. And you too can experience that today. Lord, we come to you today, our hearts open. Thank you as we do everything we can to be a people that follow you more deeply, more obediently, more carefully. Knowing now that your promises transcend time and they transcend circumstances. And knowing now that you are so patient God, you are also so passionate. You love us with everything in you. You desire the best for us. You desire victory in our lives. So, Father, as we pray today, what is it that you are asking of us? Is it that we have been neglectful of something of service that you've been asking us to do for some time? We've sensed it, we've known it, and yet we've neglected it. Is it that we have gone so long that we were lulled into a situation, into a place in our lives where we believe that our salvation is secure outside of a covenant with you, outside of putting our faith in you and turning from our sin and to you as our Savior, confessing those sins and believing upon you as our Lord. Have we come to that place? If so, would you allow today to be the special day there would be those that would come and trust Christ and Christ alone. Father, we thank you for Rahab. From shame to fame. Thank you for the life lessons that we received through her. Thank you for rebuilding. Thank you for restoring. And we thank you for the very regeneration of our lives from darkness to light, from lostness to salvation, from hopelessness to hope. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.